Hello, friends. Welcome to the eighth house of astrology, ruler of occult, magic, mystery, and truth. Join me, Sarah, a developing psychic medium with a scientific mind, and my good friend Eliza, a tarotist and thanatologist, as we explore through the lens of the tarot the healing hidden within the deepest and sometimes the darkest corners of the human experience. So this is going to be the first of many interviews with Eliza, where she talks with mentors and mystics who've inspired her understanding of the tarot and topics of thanatology, art, and really life in general. Um, and we're planning on featuring this every fifth episode. So this episode will be sort of an extension of the Empress episode, as Eliza's joined by her mother, Deb, who shares stories of messages from loved ones passed on and her near-death experience and um, lots more. So grab some tea, cozy up for some eighth house conversation. Hi, everyone. So this is my mom, Deb. Hi. So we're here to talk about some really wild stuff, some stories that I have always heard my mom tell that I wanted her to talk about from her perspective. And so they tie into thanatology, near death experiences and psychology, things like that. So did you want to just introduce yourself first? And I'm Eliza's mother. A great, a great gift and a wonderful position to be. And she and my other children have basically taught me everything I know. Maybe to ease into the near-death experiences you've had, I cannot help but thinking of the moon in regards to you. And that's because it's kind of our connecting thing astrologically. Uh, You are a cancer sun like solar uh, sign, the sun sign. And I am a cancer ascendant. And so is our, our, my youngest sister, Um, your father. Mm -hmm. So the moon is the ruler of cancer and the sun is the ruler of Leo. (laughs) So, so with that would mean that is my chart ruler, whatever your ascendant is, is the chart ruler And so I've talked about this before in other episodes, I believe, but that moon is in the eighth house for me. So not only does the moon stand for the mother, which cancer most definitely does as a sign, but it's in the eighth house, which also deals with motherly, more subconscious type things than outward, like the sun. So that's why I think of the moon and that calls to mind the things in the moon card that, and and like I said, represent mothers in astrology. So I'm thinking of you and the moon card and the things that go bump in the night, my troubles with insomnia, (laughs) my mother's big time troubles with insomnia. So dad, that is how I was connected to him because you know. He was a concert pianist and a composer before he became an organic chemist. And what he did, we had a grand piano growing up when he couldn't sleep 
at about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning, the music would start. And uh, I attribute some connection with insomnia also as a gift in a way because I would lie there waiting for the music to start. And I remember the first time ever spending the night with a friend. And I woke, I mean, we got up in the morning and I was so surprised. And I asked her, where was the music? And she, of course, didn't know what I was talking about. But night and insomnia is also when the music, when the music plays. I didn't yeah. know if you knew that. Yeah, no, it's, I, I, um, I think both of us have, it is a gift in a way that's when a lot of inspiration, the, the witching hour kind of comes into play. Um, and, um, I get messages, which I know you also have, and they can be in the form of sleep deprivation and hallucinations <laughs> and things like that. Um, so visitations, um, I think you said you saw a gorilla in the hall one time, <laughs> or you may want to share something a little more, you know, relevant. <laughs> wait, wait, the only time I ever saw the gorilla was when you were about four weeks old and I had honestly had total sleep deprivation and I, I, I just walked out to the dark hallway and froze because I thought I saw a gorilla at the end of the hallway it was it was shadows and stuff I'm sure I actually think more in the middle of the night of real creatures that that other people didn't get to see one time I was at camp it was a very very primitive camp and it had been raining and we were way on top of a mountain and the latrine was down at the bottom of a quarter mile hike that was covered with, there wasn't, it was a little bit of a path, but roots and it was definitely kind of a Hieronymus Bosch, you know, the shadows and the trees <laughs> landscape. And I started to slip, trying to find my footing in the slippery mud and roots. And I saw a long, long, thick branch hanging down from a tree and I grabbed hold of it and it started moving and wrapped itself around my arm and it was about a seven foot long black racer snake and just the shock of it <laughs> made me have the impulse to scream but at the same time I knew I would be in really big trouble so that was a really intense nighttime sleep deprivation experience. One of those things that you try not to tell people because they'll just yeah. think it was a hallucination. Well, I know I'm your daughter, but I too have had a lot of dalliances walking after midnight under <gasps> the starlight, <laughs> you know? Well, yes, didn't you wake up under some deer one time when you had a fever and you were walking up highway one San Francisco to <laughs> these were actually not at night but they were definitely following sleep deprived fall asleep wherever you can find a spot um adventures um but that does kind of tie into that liminal in between states of consciousness that 
um, that, that you and that, I live in and exist yeah, in. Exactly. And in that sense is a gift because I think we are more receptive to the strange messages of our conscious and unconscious at the same time. And is there really a division? And so that, that is really neat that this whole sun and moon thing, but, um, just how do we, how do we articulate it and bring it into the actual world and talk about it? But like you said, um, eighth house stuff is we don't want to talk about it because it's secret and sacred and private, but that's what we're kind of trying to do on the show is talk about those deep, rich experiences and how they inform our conscious lives. It's just interesting. Um, yeah, I saw Bigfoot one time. And yeah, that was another one I was going to bring up. Driving down the dark road in Connecticut. And I actually was with another friend who had her driver's license. I, I was just 15 and she was 16 in, in a really remote, woody area. And we both screamed at that point. And I was really glad because she was a super traditional, conventional thinker and not really that open to interpretation of things. And she saw this creature also standing right next to the road and step out for one second and step back. And she suddenly started driving at about 90 miles an hour screaming. So I, we, but we just decided in the car, we would never tell anyone we saw. <laughs> it's cool because, to have a, yes. um, a partner in crime, as they say. <laughs> well, it validates like there was the experience I, when you were talking about creatures that we see and the validation we get from others around us witnessing it too, so that you don't question your sanity or whether or not that was real. <laughs> um, it's just what color pair of glasses you put on. <laughs> so uh, I was thinking of the time when I was with my photography group in high school and we had to evacuate um, Ocracoke Island. There was a hurricane, imminent threat of hurricane. And we had to line up on vehicles and get on the ferry and get off the island. Um, so it was a long waiting process of everyone getting off the island. Now, when we finally got on the ferry, um, we, <laughs> we were so tired from waiting and waiting and taking shifts coming from the house and all that stuff. So there were seagulls that were, uh, they, I can't even describe, they were like glowing in the dark and they were following the ferry and a couple of us were awake to see that. And that is a gift. Um, some of the, some of the things that uh, I struggle, as you know, to have ever slept in my life. So things are precious like that, where I always felt so alone and that no one was there to share an experience with me. And so many magical things would happen in the night. So when I would sleep over at sleepover parties or friends' houses at night, they would always leave me and abandon me. And so I always had this stress of like, no, I never want to do that again, because that was part of it. It was like, um, feeling like everyone else had this normal ability to shut off. And that was when it all 
turned up a notch or a hundred for, for myself. And so it was so precious that I had, especially photography colleagues, um, even though we were in our teens, we were all about 17 years old and we saw this just another phenomena that Mm -hmm. was this phenomenon that was just indescribable. And, you know, people say, we'll take a video or it didn't happen. And sometimes those things we can't capture are just are etched into your soul that are even passed down to your children and so on. They're genetic almost. It's so true. You remember my very challenging um, rescue dog, Alfonso. (laughs) Yeah. He was, he had such horrible fear aggression, as you know. I mean, he was just really out of control and no one would have kept him for more than two days. But I kept trying to stand by him. And one time uh, in the last house I lived in, in Charlotte, I never had to worry about taking him for walks at 12 o'clock at night or one o'clock in the morning because he sounded so totally vicious that if anyone had come anywhere near him out of the shadows, he would have attacked and barked his head off. But walking late at night with him, there was a woman who had a whole row of bird feeders down her driveway. And she faithfully put out 50 pounds of bird seed that always disappeared overnight. And she, in fact, one time asked me if I had any idea what kind of birds these were because they went through so much bird seed. But what she didn't know was that one, two, three o'clock in the morning, a herd of deer would show up. And it was almost always the females with babies and they would wipe out, they would tip the bird cedar sideways and they would wipe out the corn and all the seeds. And Alfie could spot the shadows of the deer as we were walking through the street before I even did. And one night- when we be something he, about the, the prefix Al. <laughs> he, well, he thought he was Alpha, I think, but yeah, he, one night, a little fawn came walking towards him and he just stood and wagged his tail and they actually although I wanted the camera I wanted a friend I wanted documentation it was one of the most spiritual experiences I've ever had because that poor animal could not connect to anyone and he was so happy and in love and it was the most it was just so tender and sweet and perfect beautiful I didn't know that story. That makes me think of a couple things like talking about the moon archetype and the messages and the um, energy of the moon. Um, The moon card in tarot is actually about fear and things that lurk in the dark and the subconscious. And, And so to have an animal, there's actually a wolf and a dog, which kind of represent our subconscious in our conscious mind um so i kind of think with alfie being fearful he sort of represented ironically he represented the um the wolf and the deer would have represented the more um conscious intentional um calm side of us 
Like there's mm-hmm. the wild and then there's the more domesticated. Oh, so I like that merging under the moonlight. That's really neat. It was beautiful. And then the other thing that it brought to mind was, I think you told me that on an early date you had with my dad, that he made a remark when you guys were looking at the stars, you asked him if, what, what, do you know the story? Oh, that came about because of you and your cousin Phaedra meeting each other as a two and a three-year-old for the first time. And we, well, no, it was the second time, but you didn't really remember each other from being babies. And there was a stare down when you and I walked into the room (laughs) and Phaedra looked at you and said, are you smart or dumb? (laughs) That was her introduction. You know, she wanted to decide. But I started wondering if you could boil it down because your question you always asked me if we were going on a new adventure was... Is it friendly or scary? That that was when you were, I'm talking when you were a toddler. Um, and, you know, I'd say, oh, we're going to get to go to the Buffalo Zoo tomorrow. And there was a long pause and you would always say, is it friendly or scary? Which again, is, is, is that. Um, Very moon-like. <laughs> and dog and wolf. And I asked your dad, if you could divide the world, if you had one question, you know, or one difference, what, what do you, and it was, it was related to us as, as a couple, what, what's the biggest difference between us? And he said, if I went outside one night and I saw a, a show in the sky and there was a shooting star or um, a celestial a new- event of some sort. Yeah beautiful celestial event I wouldn't move the thing would be the stars if you walked outside and saw them you would have to run back inside or call people or something because the thing (laughs) would be to share the event with other people and And yet you just demonstrated that you cherish that event just witnessing it yourself with your love voice in it and I had I had to, I, I had to make myself do that. And I'm trying to be, it's so hard in this day and age when we all have cell phones and we're all trying to capture everything. It was hard on big family events when it was someone's birthday or something. I always wanted it recorded. I always wanted it filmed. And part of that was my dad loving photography and I love our old home movies, but I always wanted, and now I'm trying to be more cognizant of just be in the moment and love the moment and soak all of it up for what it is. Let it permeate you, like you said, just. Instead of fumbling with your cameras and recording it. And yes, it's great to revisit it, but if you've only been halfway there behind the camera anyway um, right no and that's not- exactly how I always felt and even ironically as a photographer everyone was always like well you should you should get that get that get that and I'm like no I'm trying to actually be, in be a part of it yeah because I always yeah. had that separation between experience and 
observation. So I intentionally tried to really um, honor my <laughs> observations and really like bring them into my being instead of just. And I'm laughing because I usually was the one saying, take a picture of it, get it, capture it. <laughs> Because I wanted to be in it. Well, it it could be, you know, I think a lot of times we go the opposite direction of how we are um, influenced as kids. So that makes sense. And I do remember hating having my picture taken. It well, you thought really did feel like it took my soul. Yes, you you made that really clear. I mean, you could you were you could be in character in a cape flying through the yard, and I would make your dad go and try to take it and you would you would freeze and then it all ended the whole magic experience yeah of what yeah isn't that strange because i i've been talking about photography a lot and tarot in fact both as capturing a split second an instant in time um because things are changing every minutia of every second the light the energy and so if you capture that, you're literally interfering. It's almost like right. an um, intrusion it. to the flow. When I was taking a lot of pictures in nature, I definitely always had to honor that, almost like I was killing that moment. <laughs> I, I always felt that way. It's really strange. I mean, I think once you get into your 70s, and I and my generation really straddled the development of technology we didn't have um, a television growing up because my mom thought they were poison and we we were just pretty much locked outside you can come home when it's dark you know you need to be out in the trees and outside child in the woods yep as an older person whose parents have both moved on to other realms I like looking at pictures and home movies of of them and Bring, being able to bring that back so it's a it's a what is what do they say double-edged sword or something mm -hmm. appropriate tarot lingo <laughs> yeah two of swords is one of my favorite cards um and that's a neat one because it's somebody blindfolded holding two swords and it, it's about choice or mm -hmm. i love the twos as a gemini probably but i love them because it's you know dualistic and I think, well, being with someone like my husband, he's always, well, why do you always argue? Why, you know, and I'm like, because things aren't one way or the other. I always see both sides to everything or more than two sides. Like, I don't well, even understand why think, I have to pick. <laughs> right. And don't you think creative people, I mean, I remember you struggling with analogies as a little kid when they would test you in school. This is to this, is that is to that. I think when you were young, you, as a creative person, everything's connected in yeah, some way. It's open-ended. You can't decide one would fit better than another, right? Mm -hmm. Especially being synesthesiac. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, it is all connected. And if I believe that, um, like we've talked about, but I'm on the autism spectrum that I think um, I have learned that uh, the wiring is all connected. So it already lends itself to that um, everything, like, you know, being a f almost a flood of information that you can't discern or 
tell which is one thing and which is the other thing. And that could speak to why I love to categorize things and have needed to find a structure or a system or something. Well, we all did go into a museum of, you know, of, of abstract art and everyone is standing there saying, well, that looks kind of like a raincoat. That looks like a map of Vietnam. Yeah. And it looks yeah. like we, we tried to- The Warshock test or whatever. We try to make it be something instead of being open to the chaos mm. of it. Because when you give birth, your child's face and your first view of your kid is burned into your memory forever. I mean, it just- it's just never going to go away. And yours were, you were my first and you were so different. It was a really long, hard labor. Um, nothing compared to your daughters, but it was a really long, hard labor. But when you came out so beautiful, had a beautiful face, you didn't cry. You actually were really pale. You put both hands over your ears and squinted your Which eyes. Which I still do. It just looked like, ah, what? There's too much. There's yeah. too much information here. Bright lights and loud noises, and um, I almost feel like that has. <laughs> I've I've reset to that point. <laughs> At this point in my life, I can't take any um, sensory overload. Did you finish any, your? Sorry, I didn't know where that was. I have no idea. Just it, <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, we're open to the chaos we're just being open to the chaos that's all speaking of stuff like that and the portal that is birth and death and the things that just flow through us um consciousness life existence um i think with that let's move on to the near-death experience or more than one or however you want to share well, I, right when we were talking about that, I was thinking about the fact that there's some things, unless you're a, a multiple. You mean your, like a twin? Sarah's a twin. Yeah, so. or, or, and, and I was, but the other twin didn't make it. But there are, there are times that you are totally alone and one is being born and you just have to do that by yourself and come gasping out and breathe in air and make the change from being a mermaid to a human but you also or have man or more mer them or <laughs> a mer being a mer being but but what i was going to say is when my my dad had never learned to swim and we had a pool in the backyard and we had lots of he and i lots of magical insomniac nighttime experiences and he was in his early 40s and just decided that was the night and he was going to learn how to swim. But instead of getting in at the shallow end and kind of coasting down to a deeper place where he couldn't touch the bottom, I was out with him and that we had beautiful Luna moths who that were bigger than your hand that would just come and hang around the pool because it was the lighting was so glowingly beautiful. So this memory is really strong in my brain, but he just decided he was going to learn to swim this night and he climbed up on the diving board and dove head first into the pool <laughs> and wow he didn't come up it, it was so strange he looked kind of like a submarine really stiff and he was angled head downward 
for what seemed to me to be a really long time. And then really slowly, his head tilted upward and his body started riding himself and he just glided up to the top. You know, in the meantime, I was in a horrible panic, like how can I pull 180 pounds out of the bottom of the pool here? But he came up, he, he glided all the way to the shallow end where he got his footing and he just stood up with this water coming off of his face. And I never saw him look so happy. And <laughs> he was like, I, I said, oh my gosh, you can swim. <laughs> Why did you do it like that? But he just said, I just had to do it. But, he, you know, he died in his 40, late 40s. And I wrote him a letter that I don't think actually got to his hospital room until the day after he died. But my grandmother was given it by the nursing staff. And I don't know if she ever read it. But I, my thought to him was, when you die, you have to do that by yourself too. And just like you dove into the pool, you have to swim out to that island in the dark by yourself. But now I, I know you can do it and I can picture your face when you get there. So that just got, that memory got triggered. I don't think I ever told anybody that one either. But in terms of my own, it was real closely tied to birth because as you know, I have a clotting disorder and I can hemorrhage pretty damn easily. So anyway, when I had your second, you were such a long drawn out birth and your the next sister down was very precipitous and I had her at home, almost in the toilet. One contraction and uh-oh, <laughs> something's about to fly out and I'm just going to go out and say it. I don't like traditional medicine and I did not have a great first experience with your birth. And I really didn't want to go to a hospital or have doctors around anyway. So I was very happy that I just three o'clock in the morning. Um, did it seem it. to be working out? <laughs> yes, really well. Right. Too well. <laughs> and a Everything came out. With, but. Yes, she was born in the, with, you know, in the sack. That's her Which is, Yeah, supposedly like incredibly magical. Mm -hmm. Gives magical uh, powers. And you can see inside it when they, you really can see inside it. And um, it's like a doll inside of a kind of sticky pink balloon. And Well, were I, you ever present at animal births? Because that was, uh, I had to help Mazzy, that ended up being why I bonded with her, the dog that we decided mm -hmm. to keep, even though the kids wanted other ones. I was like, no, I, I helped her get out of the sack. I cut her cord, you know, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I was, but it's when it's a nine pound, four ounce human, it, and it's coming out of you, it kind of yeah. bigger impact. Well, I just meant you can see them. I know what you meant. Right, right, right. And her, especially because she had such long hair, it was down to her shoulders and her bangs were down almost to her chin. You were all, all three of you, 21 days past your due date. So we were looking, mammoth. Looking Even though we're in, small now, we were, <laughs> we were 
gigantic. Like, that, that just was not fair. I mean, grizzly bear babies are the size of a stick of butter. Right. And you know, Chelsea's probably 4'11 as a grown woman, <laughs> if we're on a good day. Why on earth? I mean, she didn't double her birth weight till first grade, I don't think. <laughs> but anyway. But the hair stayed. <laughs> oh, geez, the hair. But it, it was swirled around her face. So the first thing I said, looking at this um, creature, creature <laughs> was, oh, God, what is it? Because I thought it was some kind of monkey child or something. I mean, there was just so much hair and it covered up her face because it was swirling. But she was well, very. Maybe that's why you had a. Well, it's an ape, but the dream of the gorilla, or maybe, <laughs> maybe no. when you saw Bigfoot, <laughs> who knows, no, but... an immaculate conception took place. <laughs> no, but the next. Anyway, day, all the thoughts. All the thoughts. But anyway, by I, I was so happy, and I just was in complete denial because when you hemorrhage, it's the most blissful, beautiful, peaceful kind of death. I mean, you really have to fight yeah. your way back. Oh, well, I was not conscious of, I, I was so happy that I had that and that I didn't have to leave you to go to the hospital. You could just come walking in and there was the baby there and everything was fine, but it wasn't really. And it started splashing around me and I noticed it was in between my toes. And so by the time I got to the hospital, it was really a life or death situation. And they when you have a clotting disorder, it doesn't even have to be a gunshot wound that can make you hemorrhage to death. If it's a, if, if, it, it's, if the clotting mechanism isn't working, it's yeah, it just, it's just you're bleeding out, draining out. And um, so they decided to put me, rush me into emergency surgery, and um, gave me a pre-op relax you pill that was probably nothing more than something like a Xanax or something, but it knocked me out enough to have over two hours of surgery because I was so weakened and you know and in the middle of the they were just looking for anything they could tie off and shut down to stop stop the bleeding and in the middle of the operation I became aware that I could see the whole operation I felt no pain whatsoever but I was clearly floating up in the top of the room and I could look down and I could see myself and I saw how blue I was like my fingers and my feet were just shockingly like a dark gray blue and and I was really pale and I could tell that people were frantic and then I quit being able to see myself and I was in, talk about synesthesia. I was in oh, yeah. the most beautiful place that was beyond seeing and beyond hearing. And it was just, it wasn't, it was just beautiful lighting, the, the brightest, softest white. But the, the most incredible part was the music because I had never heard music that beautiful. It wasn't earthly music. It wasn't anything that anyone could ever make. And I wanted to go into that music. I wanted to be that music and, and I could feel myself going into it. And there were a couple of quick, what seemed to be conscious thoughts of, cause you 
I love motherhood. It's my favorite role. It's what I always wanted to be. And I had that precious, cute little baby waiting for me and dependent on me. And it, it wasn't really a conscious thought, but it was like, you can't leave. But everything in me was pulled into that music. And it was almost like pulling everything backward. It was almost like cartoony when I felt hot, a, a warm sensation around my ear. And I heard the words, don't do this. Don't you dare do this. But it was a whisper. And it was a desperate whisper. And everything came flooding back. And at that point, I I was aware my body was shaking really violently then at that moment. It started to shake and that I was freezing cold. And I started to feel some sensation of pain, not much, but, and I was back in the operating room and the doctor who I had a really great personal relationship with was crying, leaned over my ear saying, don't you dare. because my heart had stopped and they had been working on me, trying to pound me and shock me and bring me back into that plane. And it worked, but it, it had the effect of talk about something that you want to keep as your own sacred secret. I felt really strange ever mentioning that to anyone. And cause it felt like I had, been given a glimpse of something so beautiful and so perfect and it makes you if you have that type of experience there's never any fear of death again at all and and also life is so precious and it can disappear at any moment that it makes it makes that enhanced and you want to live it to the fullest. It makes every color brighter here. It makes every human face more beautiful. Every experience you know is filling your soul or your house or whatever you want to call it, your consciousness with a million little miracles of experience that you don't want to miss out on. It just made me feel like everything, we have so little control of things and you just have to go with it and be in it. But then when it ends, it's more the people who are left behind who are going to miss us Yeah, that you worry about. Back to the celestial event mm -hmm. and who's there to share it with you, but having to know that um, it is just ultimately... Um, we're a collective experience, but we're also completely on our own. Right. As, that last as souls trip. traveling. But you, do, you don't, even though if I had been, I don't know what the word is. It's not consciousness because the consciousness was still there. But if I had been my earthly, my true to myself, earthly self, I would have been clawing and frantic. And, and right. I was once I came back 
Um, I know and I've doctor- seen you like that fighting. <laughs> I've well, seen I- you, you were a, definitely a hang on to, um, and fight for being and my, here. And my sister, Claudia, who's a nurse said, it's so shocking. You know, she's experienced a lot of people at the end of their lives. And she went, it's so strange how some people that you would think mm-hmm. would really fight to be there and, and, and stay and, um, go, they, they are so peaceful and they begin like my grandmother to, to see their lost children, their children who've passed on mm-hmm. years before mm-hmm. come and visit them. And they're so happy and at peace to, to leave this planet and this, this yeah. And she went, and then there are other people who will claw their way back. It's so interesting because that makes me think of um, the attachments, whether it's considered, uh, it's harder when it's a strong attachment. Um, But in some ways, it makes me think of when I had that telepathy experience with my friend, Nate, um, who... Um, I saw his ghost essentially. And I asked him if there was something I could do here that he needed. And I found out what that was, but that I feel like sometimes souls hang on because there's, there's things they still need to do. And that sounds like that was the case with you and some who have had fulfilling, um, complete completion type experiences are are okay with they're they're good they can go there was a great difference in my mom and my dad when they died when my dad died he left pretty young kids and mm-hmm. um and he and I were really close and that was so sad and you know that whole story it's programmed into you because i had tried and tried to get pregnant and i found out i was pregnant with you the day he had exploratory surgery and found out he was terminally ill with cancer. So my pregnancy with you went hand in hand, sun and moon again, Yeah, with his leaving. And when he died, he came back to me, to my sisters over and over again in dreams that were very vivid and helpful and I think he he wasn't finished being a dad and he lingered and gave us guidance and was a teacher my mom on the other hand always wanted to fly she died went right out the window and never (laughs) she is well speaking of I don't know if you caught that connection but um or if I even shared this with you but speaking of Nate just to say this um when he he, you remember Dave Gibson, um, he sent me a message, ironically, the day that our first episode aired, which featured Nate, it was like all along the way, Nate is giving me these messages that he's, that he's around, that he's watching over things and, um, not in a negative way, but he sent me a message of a poem that Nate had wrote and it's called Mockingbird. And the last line is I, I travel in a mockingbird. And with my whole connection to me having a loss of him while I was pregnant with my son. And then when I had my son in the hospital, 
outside on the balcony, there was a mockingbird and there has always been mockingbirds associated with my son. And to never know that Nate wrote that until recently, it just kind of blew my mind. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, he's the mockingbird. What in the- How much wow. we love mockingbirds too. Okay, well, I do have to say one more thing and that is in parallel totally that when when my dad, the last time I saw him, which was, you know, two days before he died, he told me that he would come back as a hawk. And yeah. hawks have been so, oh, don't let Al hear this, but hawks. No, no, been- I, I think recently Al has been showing me, well, we've had, we've done readings with him where he has told us he's been a hawk before. So you don't have to worry because I think that Al be has big, already been that. <laughs> that would explain his battle with the hawk and who I know. And, oh, let me leave like that. Like a karmic there. battle. <laughs> but the hawks have always been there. Anytime I go on a trip, especially through the mountains, one will just appear and guide me for hours sometimes. And One time in a moment of just absolute, complete despair, I was sitting out on the back step and a hawk came and just perched in front of me for a good 10 minutes, not five feet away, a hawk. I mean, it was a red-tailed hawk and just sat there cocking its head periodically. But the most profound was when I took your daughter, Isabel, when she was six. I had never seen my father's grave that he was buried back behind my grandmother's house in a little old old cemetery and we played there when I was little but I just didn't ever have the heart to go there but I for some reason was driven to take Isabel there and there were a lot of people there a lot of infants because it dated from the 1800s and Izzy was being her usual fairy self and you know running and everything and I was about to give up because I couldn't find the Branocks I couldn't find them anywhere and Izzy started waving to me across the cemetery and she she called out I'm standing on your grandmother (laughs) and my father was right next to her so I went running over and I went Isabel how did you find it and Izzy who had never heard this story or knew nothing about it just pointed up and right overhead was a red-tailed hawk and it had been circling over the graves of my family especially my father and led her to it 